0: Benjamin B. Warfield said, A firm faith in the universal providence of God is the solution of all earthly troubles. A firm faith in the universal providence of God is the solution of all earthly troubles. Benjamin B. Warfield was no mean theologian when he stated this. Probably the finest theologian America ever turned out. So that's a tremendous statement. We need to probe what he means. We've been in a series on Isaiah. We come now to Isaiah 10. We skipped Isaiah 9. That was a great passage. Under us a child is born. Under us a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, there shall be no end to set upon the throne of David, to order it, and so on. Uh, We dealt with that passage last Christmas, and it's available, mimeographed, in the foyer. So we're going to jump on over into the 10th chapter of Isaiah and look at this matter of God's providence. The background we have here, the coming of judgment on Judah. In the first verse, God says, Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees, that right grievousness which they have prescribed, To turn aside the needy from judgment. God pronounces judgment on his people Judah because of the sin of their leaders. The judges were decreeing uh, false judgment. They were taking advantage of the weak, the fatherless, the widow, and so on. And God would send punishment on this nation. There are certain questions uh, that Isaiah raises in connection with this coming judgment that are tremendous questions. In the third verse he says, And what will ye do in the day of visitation when God visits in wrath for these sins? What will ye do? Notice it's not if God visits, it's when he visits. And then he says, To whom will ye flee? No man can help you when God visits. Uh, The only one that you can get any help from is the one who's doing the visiting, God. And he says, where will you leave your glory? The man who glories in riches, where are you going to hide your riches when God visits? The man who's poured his life into his business and built a great business, is that business going to save you when God sends A visitation on our nation? The one who's uh, lived for something other than God? What's going to protect that something, the thing you glory in, in that day? America needs to hear these questions. As a rumbling of judgment, we're seeing the first signs of it. Our nation is a nation that's beginning to feel the wrath of God. That's what's happening That's the meaning of the financial reverses, the economic situation. That's the meaning of the defeats, militarily and so on. We're a nation that's beginning to feel the judgment of God. We need to hear these questions. What will you do in the day of visitation? To whom will you flee? Where will you hide your glory? The instrument of judgment is mentioned In the fifth verse, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. Notice the commission of this instrument. In verse 6, I will send him against an hypocritical nation. God would send Assyria, an idolatrous nation, against his own people. God often uses a nation that doesn't worship him at all, like Russia, like China, to punish a hypocritical nation that professes to worship him, but they don't really worship him in sincerity and in truth. Oh, Assyrian, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hand is my indignation. When Assyria comes and smites, it's God smiting through the rod of Assyria. It's really God's rod. He commissioned them. You notice... Uh, This doctrine of God's governing providence that we hit here. Uh, The Shorter Catechism defines God's providence as his most holy, wise, and all-powerful, preserving and governing all of his creatures and all of their actions. Not some of his creatures and some of their actions, not their good actions, but he doesn't govern their bad actions. His all-powerful governing of all of his creatures... In all of their actions. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's what we're being taught here. That it was God who had sinned. And that the power that this nation had, this mightiest nation of the world then, the power that they had was from God. Otherwise, they would have had no power over any other nation. The rod in their hand is my indignation. I have sinned. You remember when Jesus stood before Pilate? And Jesus apparently was not at all concerned about what Pilate was going to do. He wouldn't even open his mouth. And it just upset Pilate tremendously. And Pilate said, Don't you know that I have power over you? That according to my word you're going to live or die? Don't you know that? Jesus said, Except it were given you from above, you would have no power. You don't have any power over me. God's in control of this whole operation. Pilot, now just calm down. <laughs> that calmness that Jesus had was due to that assurance, that knowledge. We have a problem with uh, this kind of a doctrine. You know, the Presbyterian Church is famous for it, and every now and again I have to preach a sermon on it to remind you we're and it just shakes up a bunch of folks whenever we talk like this. They just don't like to think that they're under the control of someone else. We want to be under our own control. And the idea of us, everything, being under absolute control, we just we don't like to admit it. fact of the matter is, everything is under God's control. When you say God, you say control. The two words are synonymous. Uh, if If God created something he couldn't control, then it became God and he's no longer God. It would be immoral for God to come, to create something that he couldn't or wouldn't control. It's, it's immoral to create chaos. Any man who created some kind of chain reaction that he couldn't control, we'd all want to hang him tomorrow. It's immoral. You notice it says, his most holy, wise, and all-powerful preserving and governing. If you have a wise one who is controlling all things, he will do it. With intelligence, it will be to wise ends, and he'll use wise means to those ends. If he is moral and good, it will be to good ends that he's controlling things. Well, God has holy ends, and he is a wise governor. Everything he does is done wisely, and he is good, he has good ends in view. God is not, uh, he's not ignorant of what's coming to pass. Nothing catches him by surprise. He's not indifferent. Jesus said that not a sparrow falls without your heavenly Father. The halves of your head are numbered. Now, this teaches that God's concerned with the smallest things. As Warfield goes on to say, not a pin can drop without his knowledge and without his permission. God's not indifferent if the hairs of my head are numbered, and if he's not indifferent about a sparrow falling. And he controlled that, and he let that happen. He's not impotent, as if he couldn't do anything about it. Rather, he is absolutely in control. So as Warfield says, whatever occurs has been foreseen by him from all eternity, and it succeeds in occurring only because its occurrence meets his wish. It may not be apparent to us what wish of his it meets, what place it fills in his all-inclusive plan, but we know that it could not occur unless it had such a part in his plan. And knowing that, we are satisfied. Unless, he says, we cannot trust God with his own plan and feel that we must insist that he submit every last detail of it to our approval before he goes ahead and executes it. In other words, if you if you complain about uh, the idea of control, then really that's what you're asking God to do—to submit a plan to you for your approval, and we'll all vote on it. Then He'll go and carry it out. Now, God is in control; He is sovereign. We know that <clears throat> everything is according to His great, all-inclusive. Plan which is planned from before the beginning of the world. Every man, you know, every man acknowledges this in prayer. A lot of men won't acknowledge it in conversation. But every man prays that way. Did did any man ever pray, Oh God, thou knowest that you cannot do anything about me. Thou knowest that I'm absolutely in control of myself. And you cannot hinder my plans. Nor can you hinder those of my fellow man. any man ever pray that way? No. In prayer we express... Our truth, our true way of looking at things. And uh, we pray and we say, God, watch over my children on this airplane trip. Now, just think about that for a minute. What am I asking God to do? Well, I'm asking him to control the engines of the plane, the pistons. I'm asking him to control the other planes in flight. I'm asking him to control the pilot. I'm asking him to control the weather. I'm asking him to control everything. I don't hesitate to do it because he can. And we all know that. And this is a teaching of Scripture. And this is what is being brought before us here in this passage. Well, we have a good God controlling everything. Will this good God who controls everything hurt us? Apparently so. Why? I get hurt. You get hurt? Some folks get hurt just unbelievably. Well, apparently this God... Uh, who is good and he's controlling everything, our being hurt isn't inconsistent with his goodness. Why would he hurt us? It's interesting to note the contrast of intention between Assyria and God in this passage. We're told what God's intention was in sinning in Syria. In verse 12, "...wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion..." And on Jerusalem, he had a work that he was performing. And as we read on, we find that his work was to turn them back to himself. In the ninth chapter of Isaiah, it says, The people turneth not unto him that smiteth them. The smiting would be for the purpose of turning them to himself. He, he had a good end in view. He was like a surgeon. Does a surgeon hurt? Yes, Does a surgeon seem absolutely impervious to the pain he's causing? Yes. Does he have a good end in view? Yes. And it's necessary that he hurt in order to heal. God hurts in order to heal. Someone says, well, sending Assyria against Judah with all of the horror that this would involve seems more like wholesale butchery than careful surgery. So did the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ seemed more like wholesale butchery than careful surgery. But as we read it, we find it was careful surgery, that God had planned it all out. That not a spear touched Jesus Christ, not a thorn pierced his brow, but what all of it, every detail, was prophesied ahead of time, was a part of God's plan. It was careful surgery. And not wholesale butchery. And you know, we need to realize that when men suffer, they suffer as sinners. That's not to say that the man who sins the most is going to suffer the most. That's not so. In this old world, the man who suffers the most probably isn't the man who sins the most. The man who sins the most, usually God reserves the great deal of his suffering for Eternity. That's when he's going to get his. And God passes over many things that man does. But when we suffer, the worst suffering, the worst of us receive far less suffering than the best of us deserve in this world. So we really don't have any grounds to complain. We know God's intention is a good intention. He hurts in order to heal. We also know that God has not dealt with us according to our iniquities. He's been merciful, even in dealing with us. We need to hear the rod and him who appointed it, to quote Micah. The rod has a voice. When affliction comes to a nation or when affliction comes to an individual, it didn't arise from the dust. It didn't happen by fate or chance or accident. Hear the rod in him who appointed it. It has a purpose. It's got a voice. It's saying something. When you look at that window pane, we could sit there and we could analyze the pane, look at all the fingerprints on it, get get all over whoever didn't clean it, look at how it's fitted into the sill, and concentrate on the pane. Or we can look through the window pane at the world beyond. That's what the pane was designed for. When affliction comes, you can concentrate on... The person who brought it and feel all kind of resentment at them, or uh, all of the details of just how it happened, and if it, you hadn't done this, that wouldn't have happened, and so on. Look beyond the rod to him who appointed it. It has something to say. Don't stop with a tragedy. Look beyond it to God who sent it, and turn to him. That's what the voice is saying. The. Intention of Assyria was totally different. We read in the 7th verse, How be it he meaneth not so. God meant to wound in order to heal. But Assyria didn't mean that at all. He meaneth not so. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations not a few. Tyranny. Control of the world was what Assyria was after. But it doesn't matter doesn't matter because, you see, Assyria can't do anything apart from God permitting it to happen. It doesn't really matter, in a sense, what China's purpose is, what Russia's purpose is, or it's good for us to know their purpose to be alert. But the real thing is, what is God's purpose? Because Russia, China, nothing else can happen except as God allows it. And the real thing that we're concerned about is, what is God's intention? You remember Joseph? His brother sold him into slavery. Later on, when he had a chance to get back at him, he said, oh no. He says, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good, to save many people alive. We're concerned with what God means. This is the thing that is the key. God means it as a family rod. God raises the rod over his children like I raise the rod over my children. It's from the father of the family to chasten, to work something good in his children's lives. That's the instrument of judgment, Assyria. Notice the judgment of the instrument. In verse 12, It shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. The time would come when the instrument would be judged. The reason is this attitude of pride and haughtiness. In verse 13, For he saith, By the strength of my hand I have done it. He doesn't acknowledge God's hand in the power that he has and in the success that he has. You say, But wait a minute. Why should God punish Assyria when Assyria was carrying out God's will? Be careful. God has different wills. Assyria was carrying out God's secret will, his secret plan for dealing with his own people, in a sense. But it was going against his revealed will, his commandments, where he says we're to treat our fellow man as we would have them to treat us. We're to love others, and so on. They were violating God's revealed will. God is just in what he afflicts. But in executing his judgment, Assyria was not just any more than the people who crucified Christ were just when they carried out God's secret plan in the crucifixion of his son. God is not the author of sin. Augustine said, they that, he said that sin proceeds from themselves, from the individual. That in sinning they perform this or that action is from the power of God who divides the darkness according to his pleasure. The sin proceeds only from the individual, not from God. That the sin results in this effect or that effect, that's from God who controls the whole operation. God has a left hand and a right hand. With his right hand he causes good. With his left hand he controls evil. Together... He bounds everything and works out his plan. But God is not the author of sin, nor the approver of it. The sin proceeds only from the individual. That means that the individual is a moral agent. Sin is the action of a moral agent who is held responsible. God's providence, God's control, is so done that the individual is not Deprived of the faculty of choice. When Judas betrayed Christ, when Pilate betrayed Christ, they chose. They were acting as moral agents and they were held accountable. God's providence does not deprive the individual of that degree of liberty which is essential for responsibility. We're not puppets in God's hand even though he controls all things. Notice the attitude of Assyria. They're so proud. They say, by the strength of my hand I've done it. They even say, we'll deal with Jerusalem and with Jerusalem's gods just like we've dealt with all these other gods. And God brings out the absurdity of that. He says in verse 15, Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? Isn't that tremendous? God takes a nation, and he takes it like a little switch or a stick, and he whips another nation with that nation. The Godhood of God. And then this nation is proud and talks about what it's going to do when it gets to dealing with God's nation. God's people. It'll handle them just like everybody else. That's just like if I were to... Take a switch and be beating my children, suddenly that switch just turned around and said, now you just, I'll just take care of you right now. A switch can't do that. But it's that absurd, the idea that men can do anything against God's will. God is God! And God controls everything! Isn't that a gigantic picture? Of God It has tremendous significance, as Warfield was pointing out at the beginning. It's the solution to everything to begin to realize this. Notice when God will uh, deal in judgment with Assyria. It says in verse 12, Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion, When I get through with what I'm doing to my people, then I'll deal with the instrument. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that God's going to finish his work on you and me? That Jesus who died shall be satisfied? That God is faithful enough to just keep cutting until he gets the cancer out of us? Praise God that all of my complaining and all of the proudness of the instrument that he may use to bring me into subjection and to break me like you break a coat. Integrate that all the pride of the other and all the complaining of myself isn't going to cause him to stop his work. He's just going to perform his whole work upon his people. Then he'll deal with the pride of the instrument. Notice the description of his dealings with Assyria. It says in verse 16, Therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness. And under his glory he shall kindle a burning, like the burning of a fire. And the light of Israel, namely God, shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame. And it shall burn and devour. God turns and deals with Assyria, this greatest nation on earth. It's going to be like you setting a fire under a group of thistles and thorns. Just like that, God will handle it. In one day. God did handle them in one day. We're told the outcome of the whole thing a little further on in Isaiah. 37th chapter, thirty-six, verse. Assyria moves right up through the cities of Judah, right up to Jerusalem. Great army camped outside of Jerusalem, ready to besiege it. But then it says in verse 36 of chapter 37, Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. When they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and lived at Nineveh and there he was killed. God dealt with them in one day, 185,000 wiped out, the whole army destroyed. The accomplishment of God's purpose is brought out in the latter part of this. In verse 20, It shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, namely Assyria. They had run to Assyria for help. But shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. God had a work. His work was twofold, converting some, chastening his own who were already converted, and then consuming the rebels. He speaks of those who will be left, and why they will be left. The remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob. Only a remnant. Well, hadn't God told Israel that uh, their children would be like the sand of the sea for multitude? Yes. None would remain when God got through with his work. Why? God's plan called for it to be that way. It was decreed. In verse 22, For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. God's righteous judgment shall overflow and consume, and only a remnant will be left. And all of this according to God's decree, God's plan. And what will he accomplish in that remnant? It says they will stay upon the Lord, stay upon Jehovah. They will won't they won't rely on other things and other people. They will rely on the Lord God of Israel. They'll put their trust in him. And they will return, it says, unto the mighty God. In verse 21, and you notice we've met this mighty God before. We met him in the ninth chapter. Unto us a son is given. Unto us a child is born. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. They will return to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is reigning. Jesus Christ is governing the universe. This nation would turn to the true God of Israel, ultimately. And this ultimate fulfillment of this takes place in the remnant that turned in New Testament times, the ultimate fulfillment of this. We read this in the book of Romans, in the ninth chapter, and in the eleventh chapter. Here we find all of our duty. What is God's work designed to accomplish in you and in me? Two things, that I would stay upon Jehovah. My reliance will be upon Jesus Christ. I will trust in him as my Savior. I'll trust in him for my daily shepherding. I won't trust in other things. I'll trust in Christ. And I will surrender to Christ. I will return in true repentance to the mighty God, Jesus Christ. Here is our whole duty. Have you done that? Are you relying on Jesus Christ as your Savior, the one who died for you, as the one who will shepherd you through life also? Are you relying on yourself, on your good record, on other things? Or are you relying on Jesus Christ alone? God has to keep cutting, has to keep wounding, until we are stayed upon Jehovah. And then again, have you really surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord of you? He controls the universe. Have you yielded your will to him? The lessons are tremendous. He speaks of what attitude God's people there and in the nation should have as they face this coming judgment. You feel God's got to deal with our nation because of the sin of its leaders, I do, and the sin of its people. How can God pass by? Billy Graham said, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's true. Well, if you're a Christian, how should you look at the coming judgment, which must come? He told the people how they should look at it. Verse 24, Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, true believers, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his staff against thee, for yet a very little while and the indignation shall cease. God says, True, there will be this judgment. He will smite just a little while and my indignation will be over. Trust me. When I smite, I mean it for your good. I'm accomplishing a good work. The doctrine of God's universal providence is consoling to the Christian. It should lead him to be bold, not to fear. We cannot be robbed of God's providence. No one can take that promise. And as long as I have God's providence, what do I need to fear? Nothing. He promises that he is in control. God, you know, God is in his heaven. All is right with the world. He is working out his purposes. No one can thwart them. And all is right with me if I'm his. And I'm walking with him because he promises all things work together for good. He's working all things together for good to them that love the Lord them that are the called according to his purpose. Learn to receive afflictions as from him, to look through the affliction and see God who sent it. Hear the rod and him who appointed it. Don't be so concerned to have the affliction removed as to have his whole work performed on you. Learn to see God in your successes. When you accomplish something, when something good happens, Acknowledge God's hand in that. Don't be proud and think it's of you. Christian believing in God's providence and walking with it. here's the solution to all of our problems right here. Take things that way. For the non-Christian those that are not sure, if you're here today and you just don't know whether or not you're a Christian, three questions, same three. What will you do in the day of visitation? Where will you flee? To whom will you flee? Where will you hide your glory? The only suffering that blesses is suffering that we have when we are right with Jesus Christ. A cross without Christ doesn't bring any blessing. Why not turn to Jesus Christ today? Why not flee to him right now while you can flee to him? To the only one who can help. Why not start off this new year that way with Jesus Christ? Maybe that you've really suffered some setbacks. Maybe that you're looking at the picture of the situation of our nation realistically, too. And inwardly, you're trembling. Hear the rod and him who appointed it. Respond right now. And then God's voice to you is, Fear not when the Assyrian comes. Let us pray. If you've never really committed your life to Christ in sincerity, or you're not sure, or you're backslidden in your heart right now, why not yield to him? Why not say, Lord Jesus, I surrender my will to you. I put my trust in you as my alone Savior. I want your will done in my life. You who govern the universe, I want you to come and be my governor. Why not pray that way right now? Lord, we pray for you to take these Tremendous things that Isaiah has spoken of here. Impress them on our hearts. That the Christian might not fear that we might all hear the rod in him who appointed it. And stay upon Jehovah. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.